the Brand Spanking New Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Adams. As of this glorious Monday morning, Kaepernick still doesn't have a job, Patrick Beverly should be awarded an Oscar, and Ben Simmons actually made a jump shot. But we begin with the three most important things that rocked our world and changed our perspective over the past seven days, or more specifically, the best of last week. First, the Los Angeles Lakers and Boston Celtics are off to a blazing start. 12-2 for LeBron and his boys, 11-3 for the team formerly known as the Kyrie Irving Flatter Society. These numbers are the best records in the league, and for the first time in over a decade, the perennial power Celtics and Lakers have achieved pure dominance in this sport. Or have they? Everyone jumps on viral bandwagons in the modern world. That is how we function. Sometimes things go viral that make no sense whatsoever. How many of you out there were foolish enough to do the cinnamon challenge? I know I was. Even worse, does anyone have any friends who were sent to the ER for eating Tide Pods? Or what about that challenge last year where people gracefully fell out of their cars with Drake's In My Feelings playing as the background soundtrack? Just admit it, people do dumb things and jump on viral bandwagons all the time. And that's where I think sportscasters have jumped on the viral bandwagon with the Celtics and Lakers early into the NBA season. The media is eating Tide Pods when they are already anointing them as the best teams in the league. And here's why. The Lakers have played a meh strength of schedule. Here's who they've beaten. Charlotte, Memphis, Chicago, Phoenix, Golden State, Sacramento, and OKC. Their three toughest opponents have been Utah, who they struggled offensively against, shocker, Toronto, and the Clippers, who they've lost to both. Toronto, for the record, is without the frozen trader Kawhi Leonard, so they couldn't even beat Fred Van Vliet. Boston, on the other hand, has played a dumpster fire of bad teams. And when I say dumpster fire, I mean worse than Season 8 of Game of Thrones. Before the loss against the Clippers on Wednesday night, they played the Knicks twice, Washington, Dallas, Phoenix, Golden State, San Antonio, Charlotte, and Cleveland. Yes, we know that half of their wins have come as Gorbachev Hamburglar rehabs his broken hand playing World of Warcraft in his basement. But come on, the combined winning percentage of teams they have beaten is below 42%. They've played nobodies. So why are we touting their greatness? Oh, by the way, they couldn't beat the Clippers this week. Is anyone mentioning that? Jumping on the viral bandwagon that the Celtics and Lakers are already the best teams in the league is like saying that Darth Vader is the most powerful villain in the Care Bear universe. Of course Luke's father is going to be a dominating figure in the kingdom of caring if his biggest foes are named Bedtime, Cheer, Tenderheart, Love-A-Lot, and Funshine. How does rubbing your tummy so sunlight and rainbows pop out of your navel compare with the lightsaber and being able to choke people to death with your thoughts? They'd have no chance. So stop anointing the Celtics and Lakers as the standard the rest of the league needs to measure themselves by when they've been playing teams like the New York Knicks, led by role players Baby Hugs and Tugs. Second, on Tuesday, Antonio Brown took to Twitter, remorsefully tweeting to the Patriots about how sorry he is, saying, quote, Mr. Kraft, I apologize sincerely to you and your organization. All I wanted to be was an asset to the organization. Sorry for the bad media and the drama. Thank you sincerely, A.B. It's hard to take this man or his Twitter account seriously when on one hand he's trying to be diplomatic and professional, seeking a potential career as a reliable wide receiver, but then on the other he's acting like a superficial elitist angering the blue-collar workers of America by kicking them in the face and asking what island in the Bahamas sounds best for the weekend. You're not going to be likable if you think the common man has ever had the thought, about to gas up the jet today, wonder where I'm off to. It would be like if O.J. Simpson tweeted, to the families of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman, I apologize sincerely to you and your charities. 
All I wanted to be was a good father and friend. Sorry for the bad media and the unraveling of the judicial system. Thank you sincerely, Juice. Followed by the tweets, about to gas up the white Bronco. Where should I drive to? And a picture of him kicking Leslie Nelson in the face with a caption, this is for you, old man. The Naked Gun franchise is a stain on my acting career. For the record, should we forget that only one month ago, he was giving the entire NFL on the Twitterverse the middle finger with the tweet, quote, will not be playing in the NFL anymore. These owners can cancel deals, do whatever they want at any time. We will see if the NFLPA hold them accountable. Sad they can't just void guarantees anytime going on $40 million two months. We'll see if they pay up. This man is a schizophrenic mess of messages on his social media platform and is only digging his hole deeper and deeper. Antonio Brown apologizing to Robert Kraft and the Patriots is the equivalent of the little kid who's hashtag sorry not sorry for stealing a Reese's peanut butter cup out of the pantry. On one hand, he feels partially bad for doing what he did, but on the other hand, he's like, screw you, I'm on a boat. This candy tastes incredible. And that's where GMs are at at this point. AB84 is the boy who tweets Wolf. Instead, this time, teams aren't budging. Antonio Brown needs the NFL way more than they need him. Finally, the Houston Astros are in a world of hurt after they have allegedly been caught using video cameras to steal signs and influence regular season and playoff games, potentially rigging the World Series. This has caused many news stations around the country to jump on the witty headline, Houston, we have a problem. Oh, you are so funny, WKRP in Cincinnati. Where do you come up with this stuff? Now I know some of you may be shaking your heads thinking, why are we talking about baseball in November? Everyone knows that the most bland sport in modern existence doesn't start up until spring break. So can we just hold off on talking about America's least favorite pastime? Normally, I would say yes, but let's be honest. This is a scandal that is going to continue to unravel in the coming months and could decimate the Houston Astros as an organization and put way more than an asterisk next to their World Series title in 2017. This is way bigger than Deflategate, Spygate, or even Watergate, which, for the record, it's ridiculous that we live in a society that thinks that adding the word gate to any controversy automatically adds it to the list of political espionage. People aren't witty for rebranding cheating controversies with a subscript of the Washington, D.C. hotel. It's overused at this point. Just stop. It's hard to take a funny angle on this issue because it could potentially be a greater scandal than Pete Rose betting on the team he was managing or even greater than the 1919 Chicago Black Sox. What we know is that the Astros have cheated, and there is an overwhelming amount of evidence proving this to be true. Whether or not this cheating is heinous enough to overturn their World Series victory in 2017 is yet to be determined, and will only be unveiled in the coming weeks. Regardless, there is a scandal in Houston, and sadly, it has created a much larger issue, which has transformed a NASA plea for help as the witty replacement to Watergate. We now shift to what matters this week, which for this episode, I have received a number of people asking, why didn't you talk about the Browns last week? How could you not weigh in on what Miles Garrett did on the field? How dare you talk about Nicolas Cage and not Mason Rudolph? With that being said, today's discussion will center on the aftermath of one of the most overhyped events of 2019, the brawl in Cleveland, or what I like to call the Brown Brownpocalypse, and what the rest of the world likely refers to as Browngate. I'm not going to give you a play-by-play breakdown about what happened, because honestly, that's what YouTube is for. People throw their opinions back and forth about what Mason Rudolph said, or how Pouncey kicked Garrett while he was on the ground, or how Freddie Kitchen should be fired. Did you see Twitter that night after the game? 
everyone took to their iPhones with pitchforks and torches in hand, tossing out apocalyptic opinions like we were in the middle of the Trump-Clinton celebrity death match of 2016. And this is where I think the problem lies in today's world. The Brown Steelers brawl is not the end of the world, but people think it is, and that's a problem. We live in a world of ultimatums. If anything happens, it's either the best or the worst. Never just so-so. And the Browns are a perfect example of this. This past summer, they go out and get Odell Beckham Jr., and the world explodes. This is going to be the best team ever. Give them the Super Bowl win before the season begins. OBJ and Landry are going to be the greatest wide receiver tandem of all time. It wasn't even August and teams were already handing Cleveland the Lombardi Trophy. The modern media jumped to extreme conclusions before a single preseason snap. They made an extreme reaction simple for the effect of clickbait attention grabs. In contrast, did you see the backlash Miles Garrett and the Browns faced after Thursday night's melee? Steelers linebacker James Harrison tweeted, That's assault at the least. Six months in jail on the street. Now add the weapon and that's at least a year, right? Fox Sports commentator Reggie Bush argued, In all my life, that may be the craziest thing I've seen on a football field. They about to suspend Miles Garrett for 30 years. Sports broadcaster Rich Eisen tweeted, I've never seen anything close to what Miles Garrett just did. Um, yeah you have. Did you forget six years ago when Antonio Smith did literally the exact same thing during a game to Dolphins lineman Richie Incognito? It was the exact same move. Lewis Riddick on ESPN said, Never seen any player ever act like that ever. And I have played with slash against some of the toughest SOBs ever. That is the most trash BS I have ever seen. Hold on. Hitting a man with a helmet is the most trash BS you have ever seen? You must have been in some kind of coma back in 2004 during the Malice at the Palace when NBA players Ron Artest, Steven Jackson, and Jermaine O'Neal literally beat up multiple fans at the Palace of Auburn Hills in Detroit. We're not talking about players hitting other players wearing pads who have 300-pound linemen as their protectors. We're talking about professional athletes beating up drunk John Doe's in the stands. Imagine if Twitter were born before the 2004 season. Ron Artest would be in social media purgatory for his part in the infamous brawl. We live in a world that gives ultimatums out like candy. This is the worst ever. Miles Garrett is an example of how society is coming to an end. Off with his head. When in reality, it's not the worst crime ever caught on live camera. It's not like Miles Garrett has vaulted himself to the level of Hitler or Newman. The brawl in Cleveland is not the tipping point that proves global warming has pushed our planet beyond repair so much that a re-release of Fern Gully means nothing in the grand scheme of things. This was not the fight to end all fights, the brawl to end all brawls. This was not the first-degree murder caught on tape and Miles Garrett should be exiled to Ruripentha. As Ryan Rosillo plainly stated, a guy hit another guy with his helmet. That's it. Which brings us to this. In 1999, Chicken Little was running around with her head cut off, screaming that the sky was falling and that the apocalypse was on the verge of happening. For those of you who didn't play with Teddy Ruxpin dolls in your childhood, what I'm referring to is the Y2K crisis of the 20th century, when people thought the world was literally coming to an end. Y2K is a prime example of people taking an extreme position on a relatively meaningless action. 
Everyone was so paranoid that the world would be thrown into a vulgar state of shock when all of our digital devices wouldn't be able to comprehend the number 00 on our clocks. We're talking about Old Testament biblical, Mr. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming from the sky. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness. Earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. But what happened that night when we were all getting tipsy on Martinelli's counting down our doom? Meh. Nothing really. The clock struck midnight. Cinderella went back and picked up her glass slipper, and we all realized that we got bent out of shape for nothing. And those are my two cents on the Miles Garrett situation. We live in an extreme climate. People jump on hot take bandwagons claiming that things are the worst they've ever been. This is the end of the world. Oh, the humanity of the actions. When in reality, two guys playing on division rivals got into a fight. The Walking Dead franchise wasn't started in real life. Hitler wasn't brought back from the grave. And the machines don't harvest human beings as energy sources in the Matrix. A guy hit another guy with a helmet. It's not the end of the world. Now move along, people, and go back to your usual lives. Thanks for listening to Brand Spanking New. We'll definitely be back next week. Unlike Jacoby Ellsbury with the New York Yankees. Find me another industry where I can make $26 million a year to do nothing.